Good morning. Amen. Good morning. <laughs> the old, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Jonah 4, 9 through 11. God said to Jonah, is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Jonah said, yes, my anger is good, even to the point of death. But the Lord said, you pitied the shrub for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 5, 9 to 11. So, now that we have been made righteous by his blood, we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son while we were still sinners, now that we have been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we will be saved by his life? And not only that, we even take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. The word of the Lord. And if you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 5, 43 to 47. You're familiar with the old written law, Love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer. For then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anyone can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. The gospel of the Lord. Amen. Well, welcome home, everybody. <laughs> I just want to say a big thank you to several people. It, it, takes, uh, it takes an army, and we, we've joked about this, but this is like a relaunch of New Life Downtown, like 3.0, you know? I mean, we're, we're coming up on like a nine-year anniversary for us as a congregation, but we keep finding ways to make it feel like a church plant, you know, uh, which, is, which is exciting. So I want to I wanna thank all of the volunteers, and make sure you parents in the room, thank all the volunteers that are serving in kids' ministry. Uh, they're, they're working really hard. Huge gratitude to them. And then all who came on the tech team and the band and the prep and, and the um, setup team, I think they were here at 6 a.m. this morning or shortly after, so give them a huge uh, thank you for that. Buy them a Starbucks in the lobby after this is all over. And, and I want to thank, I wanna thank um, 
I want to thank all of our staff that has really pulled this off. Jason and Matt and Ken and so many others, Catherine and Evan and Jay, have done an incredible job making this whole thing a reality. It's been in the works for a long, long time. So thank you to you guys for all of your hard, hard work for that. All right, let's pray over the word of the Lord today. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and calls and chases and comes after us. And this morning, as we open up your scriptures, we pray that your word would find us, that your word would track us down, that the voice of the Lord that shatters the mountains, summons the deep, would stir our souls today. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Yes, yes, yes. We once had a dog. It lasted about seven months. No, it was not a pandemic puppy, like some of y'all had. Ask Pastor Jason about that. I understand the need to uh, take on a dog during COVID. How many of you did that? Anybody? All right. hey We once had a dog because we only had three kids. And we thought, this will be fun. And so we found a friend who was... Um, uh, breeding, I, I'm blanking out the kind of dog we had. Um, see, that's how much I've scrubbed it from my memory. Uh, a golden retriever. And, oh, I know. Actually, she was gorgeous. And, um, and as puppies, golden retrievers are just amazing. You know, they're just so cute. They're like a little toy dog. And then they grow. And their bodies are bigger, but their brains are not. And their energy is just crazy. And so we had, you know, Jonas, our, our son, our third child, he, he was, I'm trying to think how old he was at the time, it was 10 years ago. He might have been just a couple years old, two, two years old or so. And Scout, which was a wonderful name for a dog, um, would, in her energy, like run him over. And he would start crying and be like, oh my gosh. And, and we were the worst. Like we tried to buy like the Cesar Milan Dog Whisperer book and we tried to, fall. we were the worst. Holly and I were just terrible. Like we, this dog was like another human, so it never got trained. And, uh, and that just made our lives more stressful and, and unpredictable. And then we found out we were pregnant with our fourth child. And that's when we knew the dog's got to go. And we, we realized that between kennels and cleaning and spills and training, loving you, we said to the dog, is just too hard to do. And so she found a great home with some dear friends of ours. They renamed her. I'm not offended by that. But they renamed her, and she's been thrilled to to be with them for the last 10 years. But there are these moments, I tell you this story to say, that sometimes we come across situations or relationships in our life where we think, this seems like a great idea, and it seems like something I should do, or seems like it should be fun, but actually it's a lot of work. And you don't have to raise your hands, and you don't have to elbow anyone you're sitting next to. But sometimes there are relationships really close to home that we think, I know God wants me to love you, and I know God wants me to be kind to you. And maybe it's not someone you're sitting with, but it's someone you can think of. And you know that it's the Christian thing to do, to be charitable and kind. But if we're honest, we'd say, it's just a bit too hard. And we would like to hand them over to someone else, like we did with our dog, And say, God, could you just love them through these other people? Because you loving them through me is, yeah, it's not really going to work. 
We're in a series called Everyday Prophets, and we've been journeying through the minor prophets. If you've got your bookmark here or at home, it kind of guides you on what we're covering each week. And we're mostly going to stay in order now uh, that they are found in, in the Bible until we get to the very last two books. We're going to flip-flop uh, Malachi and Zechariah for reasons that will become obvious on Palm Sunday. Uh, but today we're in the book of Jonah, and I want to say this. As we talk about Jonah, we're going, we, we did a whole series last year on this. Um, and if you, if you uh, were here, you remember that. If you weren't here, you can dig it up on our YouTube channel or on our podcast channel. Look up the series called uh, When God Calls. It was a whole series on the book of Jonah. Today, we're just going to do Jonah in one day. And our title this morning is Loving You is Hard to Do. <laughs> Loving You is Hard to Do. I've tried every so often to make the titles of these talks echoes of older uh, songs, but Here's the thing that we need to know about Jonah. Jonah is the second of the minor prophets whose life we actually know quite a bit about. Pastor Jason last week told you that we knew some things about Amos, but really in the first week, Hosea was the one whose life story we knew a lot about. And Hosea and Jonah are two of the minor prophets that we actually, not only do we know a lot about their lives, but their lives become part of the message. In fact, Hosea's very life of, of marrying a, a, a prostitute becomes part of how God speaks to Israel about their spiritual infidelity. But in Jonah, we see the reverse. Jonah's life unwittingly, unintentionally becomes part of the message. Where Hosea was married to a prodigal wife, Jonah himself is the prodigal prophet. And now we're beginning to see, Jonah, I don't think you meant to become the story, but you've just become the story. You know, sort of one of the rules of uh, TV journalism or whatever is to not make yourself the story. If you're the messenger of the news, you're not supposed to open up with biographical comments about yourself. The weather today, by the way, I plan on taking a walk and I'm going to, you know, we don't typically want that in our people who are messengers of the news. And Jonah here unintentionally becomes the story. He himself is the story. And the reason he becomes the story is because of who God's calling him to. God's sending him to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city, a major city in a massive empire in the ancient world known as Assyria. And some of you may not have been brushed up on your reading about ancient empires, but when you hear or read stories or discover kind of the legacies of these ancient empires, you will discover that Assyria was one of the most brutal of them all. Assyria was the first ancient empire to have a standing army, meaning up until that point, if they needed to fight, they would summon all the farmers and all the workers and say, come on, come on, everybody, let's go to war and defend our turf. Assyria said, let's have a professional army just so we can go conquer people, just so we can expand and, and conquest. It wasn't a standing army that was a peacekeeping force. Some of you who have served in the military here, you understand how your role is in protecting and defending and all of that stuff. It's different. Assyria is, let's have a professional army so we can go terrorize people. Let's have a professional army so that we can be a force of wickedness and conquest in the world. Assyria was known for being brutal torturers to the people they conquered. They weren't satisfied just to claim the wealth and the land. They wanted to make people suffer. In fact, one of the things Assyria was known for doing was they would take over a group of people and they would scatter them. It was the disperse technique. And they would scatter them so that those people could never recover. Imagine that. It's not just, in sports terms, it's not just we're going to beat you. We're going to make it so that you never play another game. That's the idea. 
It's a brutal tactic. But I need to preface this to you this morning because, again, I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, the minor prophets, these 12 shorter prophetic books in Hebrew tradition are meant to be seen as kind of one book, the book of the 12 that belong together. And the reason that's important is because Jonah has a companion book, maybe a, unintentional to Jonah, in a companion book named Nahum. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Nahum because both of these prophets had a word for Nineveh. And in case you're struggling at any point this morning and you're like, Glenn, are you telling me that God doesn't care about wicked people? Are you telling me to love our enemies because doesn't God, isn't he a God of justice? I just want to say to you, hang in there, Nahum is coming. Nahum is coming. So I don't want you to hear Jonah without also knowing that Nahum is coming, but today we got to preach Jonah. And you understand, when you understand how difficult the Assyrians were, you understand why Jonah didn't want to go. And maybe for us this morning, it's worth right at the top beginning to ask ourselves, who is the person that if God sent you to, you would say, someone else, Lord? Who is the person that if God said, do you you know you have a little bit of disdain in your heart toward this? Last summer, in our series in the book of James, I talked to you about how our words are at their worst when we use words to label and lump. And we lump people up by political categories, or we lump people up by ethnic categories, or we lump people up by a social beliefs, or we lump people up by geography, or we lump people up by social economic status. Whatever we do, we create labels and we lump people in them, and then we kind of say, yeah, I'm not going to them. Jonah confronts us right away and says, who is the person that if the word of the Lord were to come to you, you'd say, I'm going to run the other way. This is exactly what Jonah does. But I want us to observe three things from this book about how God wants us to treat our enemies. The first is this, God's mercy will actually chase us down. God's mercy will actually chase us down. The mercy of the Lord is found in the book of Jonah, not only in the message that Jonah has, but in the way God tracks Jonah down. And that's why I said to you, his life itself unwittingly becomes part of the message Jonah 1, verses 1 through 4, the Lord's word came to Jonah, Amittai's son, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. And so Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord, about the other opposite direction. He went down to Jaffa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so that there was a great storm on the sea, and the ship looked like it might be broken to pieces. Let's pause here for a moment. Not every disruption in life is the hand of God. One of the unfortunate language things that we have is when there's a natural disaster, what do people call it? Act of God. I mean, some of you work in the insurance business, you're like, yeah, I know, it's an act of God. It's an unfortunate designation because what do we have in the New Testament when there's a storm? You have God, the Son of God, rebuking the storm. So we have to be careful when we try to read the quote-unquote signs of the times. I mean, several of you over the last year have been, what do you think God is saying with, by sending COVID? I'm like, oh, be careful. We have to be careful about that stuff. But... So not every disruption is an act of God. But here in the book of Jonah, we also know that sometimes it is. Sometimes there are disruptions and interruptions that happen in our life that we're saying, God, are you trying to get my attention here? 
are you tracking me down here? And then not only does he raise up this storm, verse 15, it says, and they picked up Jonah, the sailors, and hurled him into the sea, thinking it's over. Jonah's like, just kill me. If I can't go to Tarshish, I'd rather go to Sheol. I'd rather go to the grave than go to Nineveh. That's essentially what Jonah's saying. He's like, fine, the storm is because of me. Just throw me overboard. Notice he doesn't say, the storm is because of me. Let's turn the ship around and go to Nineveh. He doesn't say that. He's not actually repenting. He's saying, I'd rather die than love those people. I'd rather die. They picked him up, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. And the men worshiped the Lord with a profound reverence. It's not lost on me, the irony of this book, that you have pagan sailors who are worshiping the true God with reverence, while you have Jonah saying, I'd rather die. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Here's the providence of God again in external circumstances. Provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. God, in his mercy, will chase us down. God, in his mercy, will chase us down. There are times when we think, well, I, I don't know if God's going to find me. I think it's okay. Maybe I'm just going to go my own way. I'm not sure about faith. I'm not sure about church. I'm not sure about Jesus. I'm just going to step back for a minute. I just want to say, you probably have a praying grandmother somewhere. You probably have a praying mother somewhere. And God's mercy will chase you down. And the sooner we recognize that this storm is not random and this fish is not random, but that the Lord himself is tracking you, the better it will be. This is why we, I said a couple weeks ago when we were preaching about the book of Joel, I said whether or not external circumstances in the book of Joel, it was a plague of locusts, whether or not that God, God directly causes or God allows, either way, repentance is always the right call. It's always the right call to seek the Lord. That's why Joel says, let's return to the Lord and seek his face. And God's, God will never, when you seek his face, God will never say, oh, no, not right now. He's never going to say, no, I, I, that wasn't what I was hoping for. If you turn to the Lord, he will always say, yes, yes, this is what I wanted. This is what I wanted. Return to me. And, and later on in, in the book of Jonah, this is what Jonah does. He begins to pray. Finally, he begins to pray in the belly of the fish. And God begins to meet him there. Spiritual directors call these moments in life an invitation. Sometimes we call them an interruption. But God says, actually, it's a divine invitation. If you know my parents and you know their story, you know my dad has several moments in his life where he could tell you, I was not really walking with the Lord, and then the Lord interrupted me and redirected me. Sometimes you take him out for coffee and let him tell you those stories. It might help you discern that the things that you get annoyed about, and you're like, I don't know, what's happening? I thought I was supposed to go here, and God, wow, what's this interruption? It's always worth pausing and saying, Lord, is this an interruption? Is this an opposition from the enemy, or is this an invitation from you? Is this an invitation from me? And it always helps to have good, godly people around you to help discern that, to say, I think this is an invitation, an intervention. The second thing we see from Jonah is that it's never too late to turn around. It's never too late to turn around. Never too late 
to turn around. Jonah 3 is like Groundhog Day, <laughs> which we just had. Jonah 3, literarily, if you're, if you're a, an English literature person and you, you know how to you know, pay attention to genres and all that, Jonah 3 and Jonah 1 have a lot of parallels on purpose. These Hebrew prophets were poets. And in Jonah 3, there is a parallel with Jonah 1. It says, the Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I'm commanding you. You're like, I've heard this before. And this time, what does it say? And Jonah got up and went. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's word this time. Now, Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city walking one day, and he cried, just 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not only does Jonah sort of turn around and at least with his actions sort of mimic the behavior, maybe we kind of get the sense later that he was maybe begrudging that whole time. Jonah 3 shows us more than just the prophet turning around, but the people turning around. Verses 5 through 8, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least significant. When word of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes, and sat in ashes. This is significant. A wicked king, a pagan king, enacting repentance with mourning and ashes. We're about to have Ash Wednesday in a couple weeks. You understand that in the scriptures, ashes are associated with repentance. And then he announced, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his officials, neither human nor animal, cattle nor flock, will taste anything. No grazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals alike put on mourning clothes. Let them call upon God forcefully and let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that's under their control. Verse 10. And God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior. And so God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. It's never too late to turn around. Because God himself, God himself will turn. God himself will change course. I don't know, parents in the room, if you've ever had this experience, but uh, sometimes we'll say something and then a child will, will act a certain way, and then you'll say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. And they'll say, you promised. And it's very difficult to get different personalities of, of children to understand that sometimes as a parent, you have to change your mind because the situation has changed. We have to understand that the God of the Scripture is in a dynamic relationship with his people. Sometimes we imagine that God is a cold, distant computer. That's like, well, you did this, sorry, error, 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 you know. But God's like, okay, if you're willing to turn, I'll relent. I'll turn. I'll stop. And this is why warning is itself a mercy. I mean, think about this. We have, uh, I, I lived in Oklahoma for four and a half years. Thank God I no longer. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We finally arrived in the promised land of Colorado. <laughs> um, and we had tornado warnings. Nobody hears a tornado warning and says, I can't believe it. How dare they warn us? You say, oh my gosh, take cover. The warning is itself a mercy. The warning itself is an act of love. How is God loving toward Nineveh? By warning them. How is God loving towards our enemies? Because he's warning them. 
Warning is itself an act of mercy. And so when God says, okay, fine, I will not dispense with the judgment that I was preparing for them. He is interacting with us. This is why, this is why it's not too late to turn around. There are, there are very often in life, there are consequences that we can't escape in the natural. And you do certain things, you've you, you got to live with the effects of them on others. Broken relationships, broken trust. But before God, there is a mercy that's always available to you. And, so, and I want you to, to, to hear this this morning because some of you are living with the consequences of your actions and you're saying, well, I don't know. I don't see mercy from people and I don't see mercy from the system. And I, don't, and I, I get that. Human systems work in the ways that human systems have to work. But that doesn't mean you can't come home to God. It doesn't mean that you can't return to the Lord. Last week, we received uh, two letters from individuals who are in correctional facilities who've been watching the New Life services that have been on KRDO. And they brought me to tears to read their letters, to read them saying, I have found a deeper connection in my faith. And every Sunday, I watch the service, and I listen to the word. And one of them said, I only get about 14 bucks, but I'm going to give a portion of it to the church. I just thought, what, what is happening here? You may not be able to escape your natural consequences, but you can always turn around and come to the Lord. C.S. Lewis said this about progress. He said, progress means getting nearer to the place that you actually want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward doesn't actually get you any nearer. Sometimes we're resistant. I, I don't want to. I don't want to turn around. I don't want to redo it. I don't want to have to go revisit that thing. I don't want to have to face the place where I made the wrong turn. I don't want to have to rectify it. But if you just press on, going forward is not the same thing as making progress. Going forward is not the same thing as making progress. So he says, if you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have notions of what it looks like to be more advanced or more progressive today. But the word of the Lord says to us that in many cases, our best bet at making progress is to repent and turn to the Lord. It's not to persist and to say, I just think I'm going I'm to figure this out. I, um, I have a notoriously bad sense of direction, but I make up for it by a strong sense of confidence. <laughs> Last fall, we, we went on a little hike at Mueller uh, to, to see the fall leaves, and I was convinced that this was the trail that was going to lead to that one lookout point. I was convinced. I said, I know this trail. And we kept walking, and you know how it is. The kids are like, Dad, I, this is not right. Finally, even my dear wife was like, babe, She has a much better sense of direction than I do. I still use Google to get to the store, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm telling you guys, this is the place. This will lead us to the overlook. And finally, we run into some people who are on like, a, there's, a, there's a big group of them on this hike. And I said, hey, do you guys know this little outlook thing and all this? Is? And you know what they said? They said, oh, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm like, isn't it just further around the corner here? And they go, uh-uh, it's way back the opposite direction. <laughs> 
And I was like, I'm sure they're wrong, babe. Like, they, there's no, they're wrong. I know, it's just, pr-. finally we did stop and we turned around and we never did find that outlook. <laughs> but if you're going the wrong way, the only way to make progress is to turn around. Some of you have maybe in the last year wondered if you needed to move on from faith. Maybe you've been disillusioned by watching Christianity get enmeshed with political parties. Maybe you've been disillusioned by culture wars. And I understand that. But understand that there's a difference between walking away from a toxic version of Christianity and walking away from Christ and his kingdom and his church. I understand that there are some church environments that are truly unhealthy and abusive. It, 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 it does happen, sadly. It grieves the heart of God. But know that there is a difference between walking away from a bad community of Christ followers and walking away from Christ himself. And that a step away from the church, the church, capital C, a step away from Jesus is not a step in the right direction. It's not actually progress. It's, it's, it's trendy to sort of say, I, I, I need to you know, deconstruct my faith and, and rebuild it on my own. I understand that. The trouble is, a faith that you built may be a house built on sand. How, how good is a spirituality that you could construct? It's, it's no different than the prophet saying, that's your God? Didn't you just carve that out of wood? Didn't you use the rest of the wood to warm up your food? But that's your God. Okay. And in a similar way, we want to say, I am turning away, but I'm making progress. And God's saying, you're constructing a system of belief that you constructed. And how confident are you that that system is any stronger? And so there is a great caution here that sometimes the best way to go forward to make progress is to actually turn around. The third thing that Jonah wants us to hear, or that we are meant to hear from the book of Jonah, whether Jonah wants us to hear it or not, I don't know, is that our mercy must mirror God's mercy. Our mercy must mirror God's mercy. In the final chapter of the book of Jonah, we heard it in our Old Testament reading, but Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, come on, Lord. I love that translation. Come on, Lord. Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? Now we know. If there's any mystery why he fled to the other direction to Tarshish, he says, wasn't this what I thought? This was why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. You wouldn't know it from the words, but he's actually angry. (laughs) I mean, is this like the only time in Scripture where someone is telling the truth about God's character and upset about it? He's telling the truth about God's character, and he's bothered by it. I knew you were merciful. Like, I, I mean, if you're God listening to this, you're like, you can't help but laugh. Like, Are you accusing me or praising me? I'm not sure. What? At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me. Second time, Jonah thinks it's better to die. First time was when he said, throw me in the sea. Now he says, take my life. Because it would be better for me to die than to live. 
we see in this moment here that success is not the same thing as faithfulness. And here's what I mean. Jonah is quite possibly the most successful preacher in, this, in the Old Testament, maybe in all of Scripture. Might be the most successful preacher. I mean, dude set up a revival and the most wicked city had the king repenting and issuing a decree. Like, look, y'all, if that happened today, we'd be like, revival! Billy Graham, as great as he was, went to all the great cities in the world. I don't think he ever had an entire city repenting. Jonah was my, my most likely, uh, very likely the most successful preacher in all of the Bible, but he was not faithful because his own heart was not in congruence with the character of God. His own life was not in congruence with the character of God. Contrast with one of the major prophets who wrote a longer book, Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached and nobody listened. In fact, God told him that when he called him. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? I, I, as a teenager, I came up to so many altar calls with like, how many of you feel like God is calling you to ministry or to be a missionary? I'm like, yes, God. I'm great. You know? And what if the person praying for me had said, I just have a word from the Lord for you, little young 13-year-old Glenn. I just feel like God is, gonna t- is, is, is calling you to people who will not listen to you. Be like, yeah, I'm not sure about that calling. But that's what happened to Jeremiah. The Lord, he's, I've called you from your youth and nobody's going to listen. In fact, they're going to be so mad at you, they're going to throw you in an empty well. You're like, oh my gosh, what? And you're going to see all your people be carried off into exile. In other words, no one will repent. They'll totally experience judgment. You up for this? What? (laughs) Jeremiah has no success but all of the faithfulness. Jonah has all the success and none of the faithfulness. The point in this book is that our mercy must mirror God's mercy. Our mercy must mirror God's mercy. And this is what God himself says to Jonah when he answers in verse 9. God said to Jonah, is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Jonah said, yes, my anger is good. I mean, this guy's got some gall. You got to hand it to him. Yes, even to the point of death. God, I'm right, even to the death. But the Lord said, you pitied the shrub for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and it perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Never underestimate God's mercy as the creator of all values all. All life, all life. To have our mercy mirror God's mercy is to care about every life from the womb all the way to the tomb. It's to to understand that the mercy of God, the heart of God is grieved. When a life ends in the womb and when a life is discarded in unnecessary incarceration, When a life is refused, provisions, when people are treated inhumanely, when the elderly are treated like an auxiliary, the heart of God is grieved over all of it. And God says to Jonah, you're pitying a plant. 
I'm talking to you about every living thing in Nineveh. Our mercy must mirror God's mercy. But we're good at being selective. We're good at selective mercy. I, 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 this is my mercy. I'm, I'm passionate over here. And God's like, that's good. And this. And this. And this. Oh. <laughs> Keep stretching us until our mercy mirrors God's. One of the most profound stories of this came several decades ago in the life of a young girl named Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom grew up in the Netherlands with her family, and you'll remember that when the Netherlands fell to Nazi armies in 1940, they began to implement their program against the Jews. And her family began to hide Jewish refugees in her home. If you've read the book, The Hiding Place, you know this story. And finally, in 1944, they were betrayed. The Ten Booms were betrayed by a neighbor (laughs) saying, psst, over here. And they were taken to concentration camps. And her family suffered there. Eventually, she was freed and Later in her life, she moved to America, and in as an 80-year-old woman, and here's a picture of her as an 80-year-old, she wrote her book in 1975, but before she wrote her book, The Hiding Place, in 1972, she wrote an article in a magazine called The Guidepost. And in this magazine, I want to read you a portion of that article. She says, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to a defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I liked to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Just three years, only three years after her time in concentration camp. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe they were never There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence and in silence collected their things and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. And it came back to me with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent, and now he was in front of me, Hand thrust out. 
A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly about, about forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than taking his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How, how could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again his hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours, and I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew, it was, I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands in the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Corrie Ten Boom goes on to write, she says, And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. And then she says, I wish I could say that. <laughs> I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. And this is the quote I want you to see. If there's one thing I learned at 80 years of age, It's that you can't, I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Loving you is hard to do. The truth is, it's impossible to do. You can't do that. We can't love our enemies. We can't actually love. And I will, be, I will make this clear in two weeks when I teach on Nahum, but forgiveness is not the same thing as excusing 
the abuser. Forgiveness is not the same thing as trust or reconciliation in a relationship with the abuser. I'll make all of that clear in two. Please hear me. It does not mean you put yourself back in a place where you will be harmed. It does not mean that. But forgiveness is that moment where you say, may God's mercy toward you extend to you through me. And that's it. I'll walk away now. We're not going to be buddies. We're not going to go on a global tour, me and the prison guard. But I will shake your hand. And even that is impossible. If we were to ask ourselves this morning, are we any better than Jonah? The answer is no. We're not any better than Jonah. But you know who is? Jesus. Jesus is. Jonah wouldn't leave Israel to preach to his enemies. Jesus left heaven to die for his. Jonah wouldn't leave Israel to preach to his enemies. Jesus left heaven to die for his. Jesus is the opposite of Jonah. He didn't run from the cross. He set his face like flint toward Calvary. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, it is impossible to love like this. But as Corey Ten Boom says, I have to daily draw this mercy from God. Daily. Every hour we need him. Every hour to receive that mercy and then to say, okay, God, let it out. Love him through me. Love her through me. Would you bow your heads this morning?